Please take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 of Galatians 6. We are continuing along in our series entitled Authentic Gospel, which is a verse-by-verse walk through Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Now, as you're finding the text, let me just say that once again, it has been amazing to see how God has providentially put us in exactly the book of the Bible that we need to be in in this season of our church's life. Um, God has done this over and over again at Harbin's and thus proven, proven the value of sequential verse-by-verse expositional preaching of books of the Bible. So as you're finding the passage today, uh, let, me, let me bring something up on the screen here and now, this little screen that I'm about to bring up here, that is a, a screenshot of, of something called a Fitbit, all right? How many of you know what a Fitbit is? Everyone's probably know what that is by now. Okay, so I've, I've got one on me here. It's probably one of my favorite gifts that my um, wife ever gave me. Um, now, I think giving a Fitbit in the other direction would be very insulting. Uh, but anyway, my wife gave me a Fitbit, and now I, I, I love this little thing. Now, I don't use it as much as I should. You can tell that by just looking at me. But the Fitbit here keeps track of your exercise. It keeps track of your steps. So you see here the steps you've taken and how many miles you've gone and how many calories that is and how many minutes that took. And then it can keep track of your sleep and everything else. It's to help you walk a healthy walk, to live a healthy life. And so I was thinking about that this morning as this little tool on my wrist here to help me try to stay in step with a healthy lifestyle. And it literally counts the steps that I'm taking. And I thought about that as we come to Galatians chapter 6. You see, because back in Galatians chapter 5, Paul has challenged us to carry out a spiritual walk. He's not talking about us physically taking however many thousand steps we need to take during the day, but spiritually keeping in step with the Holy Spirit of God. Back in verse 16 of chapter 5, he told us to walk by the Spirit. In verse 25, he told us to keep in step with the Spirit. And he's contrasted that spirit walk, that spiritual way of living, and all the spiritual fruit that such a walk is supposed to produce. He's contrasted that with the desires of the flesh that can lead one into a whole litany of vices. So there are two walks, in other words. There is the spirit walk, and there is the flesh walk. And today's text, chapter 6, is kind of like a spiritual Fitbit. Paul wants to get very practical, very down to earth, so we can see, we can literally see what walking by the Spirit looks like, and then we can hold it up to our own lives to see if we are in step with the Spirit. So chapter 6 is a clear picture of genuine, spirit-filled living. So please stand now as we read Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Galatians 6, we're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 5. We stand because we believe that this word that we are about to read and explain is the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word of God. Verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, 
and so fulfill the law of Christ. For, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a, a book like Paul's epistle to the Galatians, which has some great, deep theological truths. But we also thank you that those theological truths just aren't left in some sort of ivory tower for us to think about, but instead are brought down to earth, and Paul gives us very clear instructions as to how we are to live out the things that we say we believe. It's the gospel lived out in us that shows that we've run, really understood it. And so this morning we pray that you'd open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to your word and give me a mouth to speak it this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The book of Galatians that we've been in, as I've said several times, is a letter. And it was written to um, some churches, several churches, in the Roman province of Galatia. And these churches have been confused and troubled by a group that has come into the churches called the Judaizers. This group perverted the simple gospel message of our salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, by adding legalistic works into the equation. So Paul spent the first half of this epistle dismantling the Judaizers' argument, showing from the scriptures that a person is not justified by works, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And more than that, our faith itself is an inward, spirit-enabled, spirit-wrought work of God and not an outward, flesh-enabled work of man. That's why back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul chastised these young Galatian believers saying this, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Sure, the adherence to a written moral code and the doing of religious deeds in one's own strength perhaps made them feel spiritual, but they were actually not spiritual at all. But instead, they were living by the flesh if they bought into what the Judaizers were saying. Legalism, which is what the Judaizers' whole system boiled down to, makes one feel spiritual, but it's only the flesh wrapped up in religious garb. Of course, the fear that the Judaizers had, which is the fear that all legalists have, is that as you, if you don't insist on people adhering to a religious code or religious rules, then people will fall into all sorts of sin and vice. But Paul's understanding of freedom from the law would not allow for that either. We saw in Galatians 5 verse 13 that truly spirit-filled believers cannot and do not use their freedom in Christ to cover up their sin, but instead use their freedom, as we read in that verse, through love to serve one another. And that's what today's text is all about. Through love, serving one another. So as Deemer had laid out a couple of weeks ago, this is a road, the spiritual walk is a road with two ditches. One ditch is labeled legalism and is fleshly because it puts hope in man's ability to keep rules in the flesh. And the other ditch is license. 
And it is fleshly because it gives in to the sinful desires of the flesh. But the path down the middle is the spirit-filled life. And because we are still battling flesh, battling sin in our own lives, we all, each one of us in here, swerve to one ditch or another, and we need to work to stay on the spirit-filled path. And that's hard. Matter of fact, that's impossible to do. It's impossible to do on our own, that is. That's why it's the spirit-filled path. It's the spirit-wrought life. And so what the spirit-filled walk down this path looks like is what we have in today's text. And so here's your first point this morning. It's simply this. People who walk by the Spirit, number one, gently heal those overtaken by sin's woes. Gently heal those overtaken by sin's woes. Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Brothers. Notice again that Paul is calling them brothers, meaning that he has full confidence despite their wandering, despite the confusion that's been sown into the church, he has complete confidence that they are genuine, regenerate believers in Christ and thus are part of the family of God. And because they are in the family, united to Christ and united to one another, then they can and should address sin that comes up in the family. If anyone is caught in any transgression. Now the first thing I want you to notice is simply this. That Paul's command here presupposes sin in the church. Transgressions within the brotherhood. Friends, so long as we are still in these bodies, we still sin. We will always have indwelling sin. And to convince you of that, all we have to do is go to Romans chapter 7. Paul in that passage speaks of his own indwelling sin. Believers are declared righteous and just and perfect before God on the basis of Christ's work alone. Yet believers are in the process of being made righteous and just and perfect. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So until we are like him, perfected in him, we will still battle sin. Now in today's text, I don't think Paul has any specific situation or specific sin in mind. This is a very general statement. If anyone is caught in any transgression, the point being that any of us can get caught in any transgression and every one of us should be ready to restore. Now I want to focus real quickly on that word caught. What does Paul mean here that we're caught in a transgression? It can have two meanings. Number one, the word caught, this Greek word caught, uh, could mean being caught in a secret sin, like, like someone catches you doing it. For example, the woman in, in John 8, the woman caught in adultery was caught in sin. Or number two, it could be, be, mean that we're, we're caught by sin. As in sin captures us like it's pursuing us and it catches us, it overcomes us, it surprises us, it overtakes us. It seems that it's the second sense, the sense of us being overtaken by sin is what Paul has in mind here. And the reason I say that is simply because the verb for being caught is in the passive voice indicating that the one sinning has been overtaken by the sin, has been caught passively. They have been overcome, the sin has surprised them. Now that's important because 
what is being addressed here is not a person, is not a person who is in a settled, stubborn pattern of unrepentant sin. There are times when there is a need to firmly rebuke a brother who is stubbornly, habitually committing blatant sin that they are unrepentant of. But more, much more frequently, there is a need to gently admonish brothers for ignorantly, foolishly committing careless sins that they may not even be aware of. Now just because the verb caught here carries the element of surprise, this in no way means that the one who is overtaken by sin is not still at fault. Being caught in Galatians 6.1 does not dismiss what James says in James 1.14, which is that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are still at fault no matter what sin we fall into. Sins of blatant commission or sins of ignorant omission. Let me illustrate it uh, this way. And I heard another pastor illustrate it like this. It's like you're driving down a, a multi-lane highway and you pull into a lane and you didn't see the car that was there. Okay, there was a car in your blind spot and you didn't see it and you start pulling into the lane. And I think perhaps on the way back from the airport, I may have done that a few times yesterday. Heather says four, four times. Okay, so you pull over into the, to the lane and you, all of a sudden the car is there. You hear the, the honking horn and you're like, what do you say? Where did that car come from? As, as if it just magically appeared, right? Well, where, did, where did that come from? We're surprised. Okay? We didn't see it coming. We didn't premeditate it, but we're still at fault. It's still our fault. We pulled over into the lane. We were careless. We weren't watchful. We were lazy. We weren't paying attention to our blind spot. So, too, we have many spiritual blind spots that we are caught in sometimes, where we are caught by sin. And I think that's a good illustration, actually. We, perhaps we don't even realize what we're doing, but it's still our fault because the word here for transgression, the word here for sin, is it, Paul chooses the word transgression, which means to, to step out of bounds, to get out of the proper lane, if you will. So what should happen when a brother steps out of bounds, who transgresses, who sins? Well, the Bible says, you who are spiritual should do something about it. You who are spiritual should ignore it. You who are spiritual should condemn and criticize him who's fallen. You who are spiritual should talk about the brother's fault with others. You who are spiritual should report him to the pastor so the pastor can take care of it. No, none of the above. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You who are spiritual. Now what does that mean? It simply refers to those who are living by and thus are in step with and walking by the Holy Spirit that Paul spoke of back in Galatians 5. It's referring to the spirit-filled, spirit-led people who produce the fruit of the Spirit. This is not referring to a special class of people, but it's referring to who we all should be. We all should be walking in step with the Spirit. We all should be ready to restore. But Paul knows that in any church, there are some who are at any given time submissive to and in step with the Spirit, while there are others who are struggling with the flesh. And that's all of us at different times of our spiritual walk. So Paul calls on those who are maturing, who are growing, those who are producing the fruit of the Spirit, those who are feeding on the spiritual food of God's Word. He calls on them to take what God is doing in them individually and to put it into practice corporately by helping the fellow brother who has gotten out of step with the Spirit, whose flesh has flared up 
who has been overtaken by sin. And only a spiritual person can do this. Those who walk in the two ditches have no ability to restore. Legalistic people hypocritically deplore sinners. Licentious people foolishly ignore sinners. But spirit-led people gently restore sinners. Restore, the word here, katartizo in the Greek, means to, to put in order or to put back into place, to repair to make good or even to knit together. It was the word used in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, and also in Mark chapter 1, verse 19, where we, we read of James and John mending their fishing nets. It's the same word, katotizo. Unless you're a fish, a fishing net with a big hole in it is not good. Matter of fact, it's useless. It can either be thrown out or it can be restored. It can be mended. I'm afraid too many believers feel like they have been left on the spiritual trash heap by condemning legalists or indifferent licentious folks. Wise fishermen know how important it is to examine and mend the nets so that the nets could be useful once again, so they could serve their purpose once more. So too, brothers caught in sin need to be restored to their purpose in the body of Christ. The word restorer, again, Katartizo, it was a medical term. So it was used for the mending of nets and other things, but it was also used as a medical term referring to putting a, a dislocated bone back into joint or even resetting a broken bone. So not only does the word carry with it the image of restoring one to his or her purpose, but it also carries the image of healing, bringing healing to the person. Sin puts our spiritual bones out of joint, and we need... We desperately need brothers and sisters in Christ who can help us put those bones back in place. But to do so, Paul says we must have a spirit of gentleness. Gentleness, sometimes translated meekness, involves kindness and forbearance. It's the exact same word found in the fruit of the spirit list back in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The point being that we cannot do this on our own. We cannot produce on our own, in our own flesh, what we need to have in order to restore a brother. It can only come from the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Our flesh, our flesh will react to other sin either with harshness, if we swerve towards legalism, or our flesh will react with aloofness, if we swerve towards licentiousness. But the scriptures call for gentleness. Only the Holy Spirit can help us put the bone back gently. And lovingly. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul challenges young Timothy to pluck some of that spiritual fruit. And then in verse 25, he says, correct your opponents with gentleness. And here's why. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. And they may come back to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But let us see what the key to gentleness is. It's found in the last part of verse 1. And it says this, Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And that takes me to the second half of my first point here. People who walk by the Spirit gently heal those overtaken by sin's woes. And to do this, we need honest self-awareness. Honest self-awareness. So if we break verse 1 into thirds, there's really three 
clauses here, if we break it into thirds, in the first third, many of us are really good at the first third, and that is seeing others who are caught in transgression. Fewer of us are good at the second third, which is restoring others in a spirit of gentleness, and way too many of us fail at the last third, which is taking a good look at ourselves. Keep watch on yourself. If we truly know who we are, we should want to do this. Keep a watch on ourselves if we truly know who we are. And who are we? We are depraved sinners, saved by grace, who still have remaining sin, who have passions of the flesh that need to be warred against, according to 1 Peter 2, who still have sin that needs to be killed, according to Romans 8. So we keep watch, and we're self-aware. And that should keep us from pridefully looking down upon our brother whose bone is out of joint due to sin. The self-aware person agrees with that old Puritan adage, there but by the grace of God go I. People who lack humble self-awareness of their own sinful tendencies, of their own sinful predispositions, make lousy restorers. And that's Jesus' point in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Too many Christians have gotten clobbered upside the head by the log of a tree sticking out of their brother's eye while he's trying to take the speck out of their eye. People who aren't self-aware are lousy restorers. Too many people running the Christian race yell at the brother who has collapsed on the track while forgetting that they themselves tripped several times on the prior lap. So honest self-awareness is commanded by Paul. Keep watch on yourself. Why? Lest you too be tempted. Now that begs the question, how might we be tempted? How might we be tempted when we're trying to restore a brother who is in sin? Well, we could be tempted in a variety of ways. For example, we could be tempted to what we just talked about, and that is pride. Like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who, who thanked God he wasn't like these other sinners who were around him. Or we could be tempted, number two, to anger. We're just angry that this brother has been caught in sin like this. And that would be like James and John who in Luke 9 asked Jesus, to, wanted Jesus to give them permission to call down fire on that Samaritan village that didn't welcome them. Or we could be tempted to the very same sin that our brother is caught in. Regardless, 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. There are a myriad of ways that we can be tempted, so we must keep watch. Only spirit-led, spirit-filled people can do this. So people who walk by the Spirit gently heal those overtaken by sin's woes. To do this, we need honest self-awareness. But secondly, people who walk by the Spirit generously help those overwhelmed by life's loads. People who walk by the Spirit generously help those overwhelmed by life's loads. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear. This verb is in the imperative mood, meaning it's a command. Bear one another's burdens is not optional. Let me say that again. Bearing one another's burdens in the church is not optional. It's commanded. 
The word burdens refers to overwhelming, unbearable weights. And these burdens can certainly be brought on by the sin that one is caught in, mentioned in verse 1. And sin does create many burdens in our lives. But the idea here is broader than that. These burdens can be situations or sorrows, failures or fears, predicaments or pains, disappointments and doubts, losses and loneliness, accidents and anxieties, and so on and so on and so on. Now you may be thinking, doesn't Psalm 55:22 say that God is the one who carries our burdens? Yes, it does. But isn't it awesome that God in his providence... He uses the church, he uses his people as the means to carry the burdens of other believers. God does carry our burdens. But God's, the way God chooses to do that is oftentimes, many times, perhaps most of the time, through other believers. That's how God carries our burdens. Burden carrying, therefore, is an opportunity for us to participate in the divine work that God is doing. A work of causing his children to persevere in the faith. Perseverance of the saints. Think about that. It's God carrying us through this life that's filled with loads. And we, we have the opportunity to participate in that and carry each other's loads. We actually participate in God's work of persevering the saints. That is, I, I don't know about you. Maybe your minds are much bigger than mine. But that blows my mind. It blows my mind. And this is why I'm passionate about biblical counseling. You see, Galatians 6.2 is biblical counseling. That's all it is. It's the bearing of one another's burdens. It's the carrying of one another's loads. We need to destigmatize that word counseling, the C word. Because this is all counseling is. Biblical counseling is the bearing of one another's burdens. Biblical counseling should be happening all the time in the church as we lift each other up, share the load, and continue together on the spiritual walk toward the celestial city. God has equipped us to carry one another's burdens. And that should be happening informally all the time in our church body, but it will also happen formally as we continue to develop and implement a biblical counseling strategy. And we all have loads. This is a fallen world filled with fallen people. Therefore, life comes to us with lots of different burdens to bear. Some burdens of our, are of our own making. Some have simply come to us. But everyone in this room has spiritual baggage they came into this church with. Some are heavier loads than others. But all have loads. And all are called to each, each one of us help carry each other's loads. I wonder how many of you in here this morning are carrying a burden that feels so extremely heavy right now. Let me tell you something. You were not designed to carry that burden alone. You have brothers and sisters who are commanded to help you carry that load, and you are commanded to in turn help carry their loads. And only those who are spiritual only those who are spirit-filled, walking in step with the Spirit, can do that. Romans 15:1 says, We who are strong, and I think that's synonymous to what Paul is saying here about those who are spiritual. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. And that, that passage goes on as, 
as um, Jeff read earlier, that passage goes on to talk about how the word is central in our bearing of one another's burdens. We don't see it in today's text so much, but you see it throughout the scripture. The way we bear one another's burdens and the way that we restore each other when, we're, when people are in sin is through the word of God. When you go to your brother to restore them, go to them with scripture. When you go to your brother to help them carry their load, go to them with scripture. And the bearing of one another's burdens is what love is all about. Paul says in verse 2, he says this is a fulfillment of the law of Christ. So Paul condemns our efforts to keep God's moral law through our own strength, but Paul commands our efforts to keep God's moral law through the Spirit's strength. For the Spirit-indwelled person now has the moral law of God written on the heart, and thus he is now given the desire and the ability to keep it, and the whole moral law of God is summed up in love. Romans 13, 9, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul has already said something similar in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, says this, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what... It means to fulfill the law of Christ. It's the new commandment that Jesus spoke of in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But just like the call for us to restore those caught in sin requires honest self-awareness, so too the command for us to bear one another's burdens in love requires something as well. It requires humble self-examination. So people who walk by the Spirit generously help those overwhelmed by life's loads. And to do this, we need humble self-examination. Verse 3. For, meaning that the ground for us being able to bear one another's burdens is found in what he's about to say next. For, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There's a story that Muhammad Ali was once on a flight, on an airline flight, and the stewardess approached him and instructed him to put his seatbelt on, and he retorted, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she replied, Superman don't need no plane. You see, he thought he was something, but the stewardess showed him he was nothing. Be careful not to think you're something when you're really nothing, and this cuts both ways. What do I mean by that? First of all, if we think we're something when we're nothing, we will not be the kind of people who seek out the help we need when we have burdens. Pride will keep us from doing that. And we'll try to carry those burdens and carry those burdens on our own until they crush us. And until we repent of our pride. So if we think we're something when we're nothing, it keeps us from wanting to have our burdens shared. But also... And I think this is the main focus of today's text. If we think we're something when we're nothing, it also keeps us from being the kind of people who can bear others' burdens. It's called humility. Humble people are used by God to help hurting people, who in turn are humble and thus help other hurting people. Humble people refuse to make much of themselves, refuse to put themselves at the center, and are thus the people that God uses to bless and build up the church. 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, Clothe yourselves, all of you, 
with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Do you want to make an impact in the church? Guess what? God will oppose proud people. You will have no impact in the church if you're pride, if you think you're something when you're really nothing. But God will do great things with you if you'll be humble. Humble people recognize that in reality they are nothing. Nothing to see here. And if we are nothing, then we can do nothing apart from God. Just as honest people recognize their total depravity and sin, humble people recognize their total dependence on God. In John 15, 5, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's why his word is so central. That same John 15 passage talks about the way Jesus abides in us is when his word abides in us. And if his word is not abiding in you, you're not going to be a restorer. You're not going to be a burden carrier. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Only spirit-led, spirit-filled people can humbly and effectively come to the aid of others who are burdened because they know that they themselves deserve nothing. So that keeps them humble, and they know that they themselves, apart from God, can do nothing. And that leads them to plead before God for help. How many of you guys in here think you can carry other people's burdens? Guess what? You can't. You're nothing. You need God's help to help you carry other people's burdens. The humble person relying on God is the person who is competent to counsel, competent to bear one another's burdens. That's the spiritual person. Oh, friends, how I'm convinced that the bulk of the problems in the church at large today is that we think way, way too highly of ourselves. Romans 12, 13 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to you, to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And then in verse 16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The only way we can be other-focused if we realize that we're nothing. But if we think we're something, guess what? Our eyes are going to be solely on us. When we think too highly of ourselves, we, according to verse 3, deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. One of the facets of Satan's very first tantalizing temptation that he brought to Eve was to convince her to think more highly of herself than she should have. She brought the deception. She bought the deception, I should say, and her children have been buying it ever since. So instead of thinking we're something, really what we should do, what verse 4 says, we should each test our own work. We should put ourselves to the test. There's the self-examination, humble self-examination. We are called to examine the work we are doing in the church. Not all work in the church, even though some works may appear to be spiritual, not all work in the church is actually flowing from the Spirit. There's a lot of work people can do in the church by their own strength. So we are to put our work to the test, asking if the things we do and the things we say in the church are done out of love, love for God, and love for neighbor. The passage Jeff read earlier in the service in 1 Corinthians 10 and following taught us that on the day of judgment, the true value of our works will be revealed. We can fool each other now, but no one can fool the righteous judge then. 
Now, many people struggle with the rest of verse 4. But I don't think we have to if we consider the context of, of where Paul is going next in Galatians 6. So let's look real quickly at the rest of ver at all of verse 4. Here we go. But let each one test his own work. We just talked about that. And then it says this. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Is this a call for us to be prideful and to boast about ourselves? No. Paul has just told us that we're nothing. And that we're, we're not to go around saying that we're something. So what is Paul saying here? Quite simply, he is telling us not to compare ourselves to others. We don't look at our burdened brother or our brother caught in sin and put our confidence in any notion that we are better than them or that we are at least is not as bad as them. And that's where our confidence is. That can't be the ground of our boasting. That's arrogant pride. Instead, we examine ourselves, we test our own works, and the ground of our confidence, our reason to boast, is solely on what is happening in us, not on what is happening or isn't happening in our neighbor. And we know, because Paul has already taught us in Galatians, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Thus, whatever is happening in us is a spiritual work, not a fleshly work. It is the Holy Spirit at work. And so ultimately, we can take no credit for anything. Thus, the boasting here is not prideful boasting, but it's humble boasting about what God is doing in us. And so it looks something like this, 1 Corinthians 15, 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. That's the type of boasting Paul is talking about here. We are excited about what God is doing in us, and we can take no credit for it. All we can do is praise him. The spiritual person knows he has nothing. He is nothing. And thus he can, in a sense, boast about his good works because he is doing so, in doing so, he's actually boasting about what God is doing through him. And that calls for self-examination of our works, and that... That need for self-examination is driven home even further in verse 5. Verse 5 says this, For each, one, each will have to bear his own load. Now this is not contradicting verse 2. First of all, the object that we are bearing here is a different Greek word, which is why the translators decided to use the word load here. The Greek word earlier in verse 2 refers to something that we can't carry in our own strength. But the Greek word here refers to a pack. It's a load, but it's something we can manage. So it'd be kind of like a backpack. So what is Paul referring to here then when he says that we are to carry, each one will have to bear his own load? You notice the future tense there, will have to bear his own load. He's referring here to our Christian responsibility. The load we are to carry is to be people who restore fallen brothers and carry other people's burdens. And on the day of judgment, we will be held accountable for how well we did. That's the load. The load we carry are the spiritual gifts that God has given us for the sake of building up the body. And on the day of judgment, we will be held accountable for how we used those gifts. 
The load we carry is our own time and treasures entrusted to us by God for the strengthening of the body. And on the day of judgment, we will be held accountable for how we handle that stewardship. And this is exactly what Paul is about to talk about in the next verses. In today's text, he's talking about spiritual walking. In next week's text, verses 6 to 10, he's going to be talking about spiritual sowing. Sowing and reaping. So verse 5 is a bridge between the two concepts of spiritual walking and spiritual sowing. And Lord willing, we'll dig into that more next week. Let me just conclude this morning's message with a challenge. A challenge to the believers here this morning. God has given you a pack. A pack of gifts. A pack of talents and treasures. He has given you a unique set of abilities and giftedness. You will not have to answer for what you might have done with someone else's gifts. You will not have to answer for how someone else should have used their gifts or could have used their gifts. But you will have to answer for how you used your gifts. Whether you used them to build up the body, whether you used them to restore brothers caught in sin, whether you used them to bear burdens of weighed down brothers and sisters. You and you alone will be held accountable before God Almighty for that. And to the unbeliever in here this morning, let me just conclude with a word to you. You're, you're listening to all this. You, you saw the spiritual Fitbit this morning. It just doesn't, this spiritual walk doesn't make sense to you. You have no desire to go and talk to people about their sin. You have enough burdens of your own. You don't need other people's burdens. This, this spiritual Fitbit, it doesn't make any sense to you. But perhaps your heart has been pricked this morning. You want it to make sense. You want to be Galatians 6, 1 through 5. You want to be that kind of person. Well, you cannot do it apart from the work of God in your heart. It can only be produced in you by the Holy Spirit. And so I beg you this morning to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Turn from your sin. Turn from putting your confidence in yourself, thinking you're something, when in reality you're nothing. Recognize that you're nothing. You are spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone to be the one who will bear you up, who will save you from a destiny which is hell apart from him. Turn to Christ alone in faith, and he will put his spirit in you, and you'll begin to walk on the spirit-filled path. You'll need help. We all do. Come to the one who says this, this morning. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if any of us in here have an ounce of honesty, then we know that Galatians 6, 1 through 5 is very hard. And that no church on the face of this planet is doing it perfectly. But God, it is our heart's desire to be people who know how to restore one another gently, who know how to lovingly go speak the truth when 
when a brother or sister has been overtaken by sin. Father, I wonder how many people there are in this church that are struggling with a specific sin. And they don't want anybody to know because they've had too many experiences where someone has just come down on them. And they're desperately wanting someone to just help them put this bone back in joint. I wonder how many parents in here that they know their kids aren't perfect. They know they've messed up. And what they need is a brother and sister in Christ to come along and help them instead of talking about them in the hallway. God, I pray that you make Harbin's a church where we restore one another in gentleness. But I pray that our spiritual lives would be filled with fruit that we can go to and pluck and use to nourish the body, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Lord, we want to be a church where we carry each other's burdens. But God, I pray that you kill pride in this room. Kill my pride. Kill all of our pride. Don't let us sit here and think we can carry these burdens on our own. We are fools if we think so. We will only collapse and fall into further sin. So God, we need our pride broken. We need to be humbled so that we go to our brothers and sisters and let them know we need help. But also, Lord, we need to be humble enough to go to our brothers and sisters and seek to help them however we can. Father, this whole image of burden bearing, it, it, it requires us to come up beside people. We can't ask people to toss their burden over to us. We have to get in their lives. We have to get messy. And that is not easy to do and it's not comfortable. So Lord, I pray that you'd stretch us out of our comfort zones. That's what biblical counseling is all about. Lord, my desire and Deemer's desire to, to have biblical counseling become a central part of the DNA of this body is simply a desire to see us do Galatians 6 2. So help us, Father. Because we know from what you've taught us already that this can only happen through the Holy Spirit. If we put a biblical counseling ministry together in the flesh, it will collapse and we will give fleshly advice. But if by the Spirit it is brought together in this church body, then it will reap spiritual rewards, spiritual fruit that will be glorious, that will be magnifying to your name. And that's what we want. And Lord, if there be any in here who don't even have spiritual fruit because they don't have the Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would let this picture of the Spirit-filled life convict their heart crush their heart, and cause them to turn to Jesus Christ in faith alone. They will not come, they will not be saved by trying to do the things we talked about today. That would totally dismiss the message of Galatians. They can only be saved if they come to Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that, that they would come, and then as a result of that, that they would take their first steps on the Spirit-filled walk of life. And we pray all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.